This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Libertarian groups such as the Pacific Legal Foundation are already gearing up for fights with the Biden administration over financial regulations, environmental rules, new policies to combat the pandemic, and other regulations. They'll likely be joined by Republican state attorneys general who fought President Obama's regulatory agenda in the courts. And one legal doctrine is likely to be front and center, the Chevron Doctrine. Joining me is constitutional law professor Stephen Vladek of the University of Texas Law School. Steve, explain the Chevron Doctrine and Chevron Deference. It's a staple of modern administrative law. And the basic idea is that if you have some complex federal statute that's administered by an agency like the Environmental Protection Agency or the U.S. Department of Agriculture, And there's something in the statute that's ambiguous. There's some authority that's ambiguous. There's some definition that's ambiguous. The idea is that courts should generally defer to reasonable interpretations of that language by the agency on the ground that the agency is the expert, that the agency is closest to the ground, that the agency is in the best position to understand what interpretation of the statute makes the most sense. And that it's far more likely that the agency is going to have the right understanding of the ambiguous language than generalist judges in the federal courts. And so since the 1980s, the Supreme Court has adhered to this idea that where a statute is ambiguous and where it's clearly meant to be administered by a particular federal agency, the agency's reasonable interpretation of the statute should control. In the Amy Coney Barrett hearings, not much attention was given to the fact that she refused to give an opinion on the Chevron Doctrine. Why do you think she ducked the question about a doctrine that's been accepted for more than 35 years? Well, I mean, I think it's a pretty poorly kept secret, June, that conservatives have been very hostile to the Chevron Doctrine in recent years, that there have been efforts to get the Supreme Court to revisit the Chevron Doctrine. Justice Kavanaugh, for example, has written extensively about it and has criticized it, at least news on the D.C. Circuit. So I suspect that in the vein of not answering questions about issues that are likely to come before her, now Justice Barrett, I think, was thinking about Chevron as part of that as well. But the court has had opportunity. It was asked in a case about a year and a half ago to overrule sort of a related doctrine to Chevron called our deference. And the court didn't really do that. So I think there's an interesting question about whether the confirmation of Justice Barrett now means that it's even more likely the court's going to revisit the Chevron doctrine or whether there really are enough off-ramps, enough ways around the Chevron doctrine that the court just won't even feel the need to overrule it. But, June, here's, I think, the larger point. The criticism of Chevron doctrine, at least the one that you hear from folks like Justice Kavanaugh, is that it's anti-democratic, that it's giving all of this interpretive power to unelected, faceless bureaucrats in government agencies they've never heard of. But the alternative is giving the exact same power to unelected judges, not to you know elected legislators or the president. And so I think the question that tees up is, who do we think is in a better position to resolve reasonable ambiguities in these kinds of statutes? The folks who are administering them on behalf of the federal government or the judges who are interpreting them. That's really what the debate boils down to. And the justices debated that in the case you mentioned from last year, Kaiser versus Wilkie. Here are Justices Stephen Breyer and Neil Gorsuch. There are hundreds of thousands, possibly millions, of interpretive regulations. I mean, they give it an example, one of them, where the court deferred to the understanding of the FDA that a particular compound should be treated as a single new active moiety, which consists of a previously approved moiety joined by a non-ester covalent bond to a lysine group 
Do you know how much I know about that? <laughs> the one thing you're going to know is you're going to have an independent judge decide what the law is in your case, consistent with the statute that says an independent judge shall decide all questions of law. That seems to me a significant promise, especially to the least and most vulnerable among us, like the immigrant, like the veteran, who may not be the most popular or able to capture an agency the way many regulated entities can today. Is it a separation of powers concern? You have government agencies in the executive branch stripping Congress of its legislative authority? You know, I, I think it's, it is a separation of powers concern. I think it's, it's a half a step, I think, more convoluted than that, right? It's not just that you have executive branch agencies taking power away from Congress. It's that you actually have Congress taking judicial power away from the courts. That, you know, if the Chevron doctrine presupposes that reasonable interpretations of ambiguous language in agency statutes um, are going to be, you know, accepted by the courts, can't be second-guessed by the courts, it's really not about taking away legislative power. It's about taking away judicial power. And that's, I think, the important thing for folks to understand about the debate. It's not about whether publicly elected, you know, democratically elected, democratically accountable legislators should be the ones making these decisions. It's a choice between, you know, the, uh, the executive branch officials who, we should say, are appointed by elected presidents or unelected judges. And, you know, that's what this doctrine really boils down to. Who do we think is in a better position to get the law right when we're talking about complex questions of federal law where the text is ambiguous? The Chevron doctrine was championed by Justice Antonin Scalia at first. Why did he then sort of sour on it? I don't think it's entirely a coincidence that there were times when more conservative justices were more partial to Chevron if there was a more conservative administration and less partial to Chevron if there was a more progressive administration. But I think also just like the modern conservative view of the separation of powers has become, June, so much more formalistic. And so in that regard, there are now at least four votes on the Supreme Court to reinvigorate the non-delegation doctrine which is an even broader constraint on Congress's power to delegate authority to administrative agencies. So I think the hostility to Chevron is in some respects part and parcel of the increasing formalism that has come to characterize conservative separation of powers jurisprudence. But this to me is actually part of the problem, which is that one of the critiques of formalism doesn't really adequately and accurately account for what's true on the ground. That if your critique of Chevron is that it gives too much power to unaccountable bureaucrats, why is it better to give the same amount of power to unelected judges? Republican AGs fought President Obama's regulatory agenda. And you mentioned libertarian groups like the Pacific Legal Foundation are already gearing up for fights over some of the things you just mentioned, financial regulations, environmental rules, etc. So they'll come before these more conservative federal appeals courts in many instances. But will the appeals courts still have to apply Chevron deference? So, I mean, the short answer, June, is, is formally yes. I mean, of course, uh, you know, the courts of appeals have no authority to overrule a Supreme Court decision and refuse to follow it. Um, of course, you know, we've already seen plenty of examples of courts finding ways to say that they're not really bound by Chevron or they're not really bound by Supreme Court decisions in the space. So, you know, yes, no court can say I don't have to follow Chevron because it's no longer good law. That doesn't mean we won't have lower courts, you know, trying to carve out new exceptions to Chevron trying to find, you know, plausible or implausible grounds for why Chevron doesn't apply. 
And I also think we'll, we'll start to see a whole bunch of concurring opinions from judges who, even as they're applying these doctrines, you know, are going to push the Supreme Court to, to revisit and reconsider them. How has the Roberts Court been treating Chevron? I saw that mm-hmm. uh, Joshua Matt said the current Supreme Court majority is killing Chevron through disuse. What's your take on how the court's been handling Chevron? I mean, I do think that the court has been chipping away at Chevron, and it's done that in a couple of different respects. Um, the first is that it's had a couple of big cases where, you know, it said we don't even get to the Chevron analysis if the question is sufficiently important. So the King versus Burwell ACA case is a good example of that. Um, the second is that, you know, the court has found a couple of, there have been a couple of cases where the court just ignored Chevron when one might have thought that Chevron analysis should have applied. Um, but, you know, what's revealing to me about that, June, is that suggests a court that at least thus far has not been willing to confront Chevron directly. Um, and I think one of the big questions of many surrounding the confirmation of Justice Barrett is whether, you know, now with a far more solid 6-3 conservative majority, is that another of those areas that the court until recently had been sort of, you know, dancing around that is now willing to confront head on? I think that's what to keep an eye out for in the, you know, in the months and years to come. Explain what Justice Roberts meant when he wrote that Chevron does not apply to regulatory questions with, quote, deep economic and political significance. What does that mean? Uh, it's a great question. And I think a lot of scholars and judges have been trying to figure that out ever since he wrote that. But the idea is that basically when the question is sufficiently significant, when it's a big enough question, when it implicates, you know, billions of dollars or massive nationwide federal programs that you know, the court should not assume that Congress intended to give so much authority to the agency as opposed to the courts. That basically the more important the issue, the more the statute should be interpreted with an eye towards Congress wanting the courts to resolve ambiguities. Um, Of course, the tricky part is it is incredibly subjective to decide which cases fall into that category and which ones don't. And I think that's, you know, that is evidence to me of both the decay of Chevron, but also its continuing persistence, that the court has, you know, torn chunks out of it, but it hasn't gone after it um, on its own. It hasn't gone after it full bore. And I think that's where the question of, you know, Justice Barrett comes in. And would she be a stiff vote in an appropriate case to scrap the doctrine altogether? Do you see five other votes to scrap Chevron? You know, I think it depends on the context. I mean, I was, I'll, I'll say I, I had been, you know, I had thought that there would be at least five votes um, for the court to strike down the sort of the, you know, the related doctrine of so-called our deference in the Kaiser versus Wilkie case last year. Um, but the court didn't quite do that. Um, and I think one of the interesting questions here is, you know, is Kaiser a sign that the court actually is going to be more reluctant to overrule doctrines in this context? Um or was Kaiser just a bit of a fluky case because Chief Justice Roberts was willing to go along with most of Justice Kagan's opinion? And even now with Chief Justice Roberts, that wouldn't be enough. I mean, that's Kaiser to me, June, is the real bellwether here because if that vote lineup holds up, that means, you know, Justice Barrett could be the fifth vote um, in a future case to really go after Chevron, even if the chief is, 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 not, well, is not willing to go there. Suppose the court overrule Chevron. What happens then? Is the is the administrative state over? I mean, what happens? No, I mean, I think so. So we should put this in context. I mean, compared to reviving the non-delegation doctrine, which would be just a fundamental paradigm shift 
in administrative law. Um, getting rid of Chevron, I think, would transfer a ton of power from agencies to the courts. But of course, that's only the first step. And the question is, would the courts actually disagree with how the agencies are purporting to exercise it? And so, you know, to me, the, the sort of the demise of Chevron would simply would, would not have implications for the administrative state other than um, the implications of being far more subject to judicial supervision. Of course, depending upon who the judges are, depending upon who's in charge of the executive branch at that point, that supervision might not actually be antithetical to those policies. That's why I think, you know, Chevron is important, but it pales in comparison to the coming fight over the non-delegation doctrine um, and whether Congress can delegate broad forms of you know, executive and in some cases judicial power to administrative agencies in the first place. We've seen over the last four years how litigation takes time and the Trump administration has been able to implement changes even though they've been sued in court so many times by Democratic AGs and, and other groups. So would it take four years for this issue to get resolved? Does he have time in those intervening years to, to put some regulations down? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're in for, in many ways, a reverse of what we saw during the Trump administration. So in the Trump administration, we saw you know, a lot of Trump policies that were enjoined by lower courts, but then where the administration was able to get a stay of the injunction from the Supreme Court. And so even though the policies were you know, held to be unlawful by lower courts, they actually remained in effect while the appeals worked their way through the court system. You know, with the composition of the courts of appeals and the, and the Supreme Court today, I think we're far more likely in a Biden administration to see denials of stays, um, right? That if, if the administration loses these cases in the lower courts, um, it won't be able to get the same kind of emergency relief on appeals. And so, you know, I think it's going to be incumbent upon the Biden administration to actually try to get the merits of these cases through the courts faster because it's less likely to have support in the form of these, you know, stays and other emergency relief while these cases are pending. So it's going to be a very different paradigm for, you know, litigation over government policy um, in the next four years than we've seen over the past four years. Finally, what are the odds that Chevron will be with us in four years? Um, I think the odds that Chevron itself is still here are pretty slim. Um, but I don't know that the alternative is no deference to agencies ever. And so, you know, if, if the question is, is the court going to take an even bigger bite out of Chevron over the next four years, I put pretty good money on that. Is there still going to be some scenarios in which courts are going to defer to agency interpretations of statutes? You know, I, I'd say the odds are yes, even if it's not quite on the terms that Chevron laid out. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Steve. That's Professor Stephen Vladek of the University of Texas School of Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. Please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern, right here on Bloomberg Radio.